Hey, welcome back, podcast listeners. This is episode 48 of the Mike Giant Podcast. I am your host, Mr. Mike Giant, a.k.a. El Gigante, a.k.a. El Marihuano. Uh, Today, I wanted to talk a bit more about 1995. It's uh, in the last episode... I recalled a bunch of memories from that year and since then I've uh, recalled a few and took some notes tried to jog my memory a bit and uh, shit I should actually pull those notes up there we go Um, so in 95 I uh, moved to uh, wish I knew the address exactly. It was 8th Avenue in Geary in San Francisco. And I was living with my buddy Ben Lovejoy. I got into some of the details of that in the, the last episode. But while I was living there, I, I don't remember how, but uh, I met this graffiti writer and he went by the name Kodik. K-O-D-I-K. And he was this uh, kind of yeah, shorter, kind of round guy with this big, thick goatee. The goatee was kind of, uh, I don't know, it was like his uh, a signature part of his, his steez. Uh, as long as I knew him, and I knew him for a long time, we were really tight. Uh, he had this gigantic goatee. Uh, and he was a real... He was a real fun dude, and uh, he lived in the neighborhood. I imagine, I, I really wish I could remember how we met, but in any case, he lived up the street, and we hung out a lot, and uh, he introduced me to some of his friends. Um, actually, come to think of it, I wonder if the connect was Conquer. So... When I first moved to San Francisco in October of 93, uh, and I was working at the office there at at Think Skateboards, uh, I think right when I got there, uh, there was a sales guy named Cliff. And uh, I liked Cliff. Cliff was a sick skateboarder. I thought he had a cool style. Um, he was a little nerdy, which I appreciated because I was way nerdy myself. And, uh, I, I think he was kind of square though, too, in some ways. I believe he might've been, uh, Christian kind of thinking at that point, which was kind of strange, um, in the, the skateboard business, which was mostly wild ass hoodlums and drug dealers to be honest (laughs) and uh but cliff cliff was cool but uh he was kind of easy to fuck with um he he'd get really rattled if you fucked with him like i remember one time the guys i don't know who had it it was this uh really flexible uh dildo it was big it might have been double-ended, but it was, like, really sticky, like it had been used, and it also had been, like, seemed like it had been rolled around on a carpet, and it just was disgusting. <laughs> it was, that's all I can say, it was just disgusting, but, uh, you know, I, I wasn't tripping on it, you know, and they left it on his desk, And uh, he came back from lunch, if I remember correctly, and there's this really, like, linty, hairy, sticky, double-ended dildo on his desk, and he really freaked out and yelled at everybody. And, you know, because it really was uncalled for. It would have been maybe sexual harassment or something these days, you know, but this was, like, 93, and it was, I think, all guys in the warehouse at that point, just everybody that worked there was a guy. So that kind of humor, uh, they felt was appropriate. (laughs) I didn't think it was cool to fuck with Cliff. I don't like people to fuck with anybody, but if they had left the dildo on 
my desk, I would have just laughed and thrown it in the trash. You know, I wouldn't have tripped on it at all uh, or made issue of it. But they knew Cliff would get pissed, and that was their steez. And that was the kind of work environment it was. It was competitive. It was a lot of egomaniac, like uh, skateboarders. And, uh, yeah, that could get out of hand. So um, I'm trying to think. Oh, yeah, I should mention I got extra fucking baked before I started this episode. So if I lose my train of thought, that's... uh, Hey, fuck, that's going to happen. So anyway, Cliff. So sometimes, you know, I would skate with Cliff even. I remember at lunchtime later on, uh, we were, we, we moved our warehouse, uh, up the street from our original location. And that put us directly across from high speed productions, which is, uh, they do uh juxtapose and thrasher magazine from there. And back then they also did one called slap. And there was a few other things that they tried that flopped, but the, the main thing is thrasher. So, the staff from Thrasher and whoever was visiting at lunchtime and at the breaks would often just skate outside on the street and in the uh, like loading docks of the warehouses on the same corner there. And often Cliff would skate with them um, and he'd go toe to toe with the pros. Cliff was sick. And uh, I don't know how much interest, if any, he had in graffiti writing at that time have to ask him i'd love to ask him sometime but uh so later on this would have been a few years later um i started running into cliff again and he was writing conquer i think it was c-o-n-q-r and i think at that time too he was living in the same neighborhood if i remember right uh i think he i think he did actually i think he lived close because i believe i met uh rjd2 uh the music uh guy he makes dope uh hip-hop well not entirely hip-hop music but it's it's amazing it's like uh I'm really inspired by it. It's it's kind of like the sound of our generation in a way. If you don't know about RJD2, you should check him out. I, I just uh, the other day was going through my old audio tapes and I found one of his that had his handwritten name and uh, phone number right on the tape. And uh, I still have it and it still sounds great. But in any case, that was just kind of San Francisco in the 90s. There was a lot of these different kinds of people that were connecting and uh so conquer and codic um i started hanging out with them a bunch more i remember they would come by my my apartment at eighth and geary um and want to kick it or see if i could go with them do stuff we would go kick it at each other's pads and we would write out uh our our tag names on stickers to put up all over the place and we would refill mops and things and uh occasionally we went painting together uh you know actually one occasion in particular i remember i think this was pretty early on when i was hanging out with kodak joe uh there's a i forget what high school it actually is but out on geary boulevard almost to the beach maybe in like the 30s avenues. Um, San Francisco, people know what the fuck I'm talking about. But there's a high school out there, and they have a big like uh, football stadium. Uh, and I guess that would be the north-facing side of the stadium on the outside. They had these big walls, and they were nice and smooth, and they were broken up by these uh, big like buttresses to kind of... Uh, stiffen the wall because it was like the I think stands where people were sitting on the other side of the wall and it was really tall uh and there was and it basically just faced this grass area and then some trees and then Geary Boulevard so when you were driving by on Geary or on the bus you could 
kind of see the the wall just a little bit um and that might attract your attention to maybe get off the bus or whatever and walk over there and actually see the graffiti because you could tell there was some graffiti up there at different times so uh during the school year uh they would keep that wall pretty buffed so people might just do tags and throw ups on it because they just knew it wasn't going to last long you couldn't really see it from gear that well but uh after the last day of school and the you know the beginning of this the summer uh if you painted up there it would usually last for the whole summer until like the week before the kids started going back to school and then they would get everything cleaned up so it was kind of a cool place to put something up that would you knew it would last for a few months unless somebody went over it and uh i think we had knew that other people were kind of eyeing the same wall so we tried to jump on it as soon as the the kids got out of school like maybe even just that first weekend and it was probably i think there was at least five of us there might have been more and each of us staked out a section i'll post the the picture on instagram so you'll you can get a visual on what i'm talking about but um I did a silver, uh, kind of symmetrical style, which I was fucking with at the time, but more of like a quick uh, street style. I don't know if I did a 3D on it. Uh, we didn't spend a lot of time there, but we could have hung out. I think we might have even had a boom box and we're drinking 40s. And uh, it was a good time. <laughs> and I think, again, I can't be sure, but... I remember meeting Cram around that time, uh, Dave Cram, and I really liked him too. I think he was from Baltimore or that area, DC maybe. Ah, fuck, sorry, Dave, if I'm blowing this. Uh, but I, yeah, somewhere out there, if I remember right, and he, he, as far as I was concerned, had kind of a recognizable style from that area. Uh, that was like the regional styles were still pretty recognizable in the 90s uh these days it's kind of hard to tell where a graffiti writer uh learned how to write uh because those regional styles are kind of been commodified by instagram and the internet in general that kind of stuff uh but back then you could kind of see somebody's tag and be like i don't think they're from here if i had to guess i'd say they're from philly or New York, or D.C., or, you know, anywhere, uh, L.A., you know, San Diego. Uh, so, I don't know. It was one of those things. But anyway, I liked, I liked Cram. He was cool. He might have been that along that time. Uh, I wonder if that was that year, too. 95. Might have been the next year. Let me check my notes. Because we used to go to this hip-hop night. And I remember meeting... Yeah, that might have been 95. So, there was a, a club night. I think it was Wednesdays uh, at Club... Uh, I think it was Deco. I think that's an, it was Deco. Club Deco or... Deco bar or something. It was in the Tenderloin. It was a little dive bar. Had pool tables in the back. Uh, and they had a basement. And the basement could seat probably, I don't know, maybe 15 people at the most. And you might be able to pack 20 to 30 people in there shoulder to shoulder. But the, the roof was low. I don't think I could stand up in there. It was tiny, uh, but the acoustics were good, especially for bass, because it was in a basement, literally. You were just surrounded by concrete walls. And uh, DJ Qbert had a weekly uh, hip-hop night there. And if you've never heard of him, you should look him up, because he is, I think, still the best and most uh, innovative uh hip-hop dj of all time 
I mean, I don't say that lightly at all. Hubert is fucking amazing. You know, every DJ I know had to learn all of Qbert's scratches, and Qbert really innovated so, so much stuff. I think uh, he, he got to the point where he couldn't compete in the DMC championships anymore because he just dominated everybody. He always came with some next-level shit every fucking time. And he had a whole crew called the Invisible Scratch Pickles, and they're still around, too. And uh, so, again, every week, these guys would meet up and um, just kind of uh, jam uh, turntablist style. A lot of scratching. I remember uh, Qbert could make it sound like a scratch was going around the room because he would manipulate the uh, the stereo so it would sound like it was kind of behind him to the left and then behind you to the left and then behind you to the right and then behind him to the right and I don't know it was just super it was a really psychedelic experience in and of itself without drugs which we were definitely doing a lot of mushrooms you could smoke weed down there for some reason and nobody was tripping. That was kind of, I don't know. That's the thing in the nineties, there were a lot of places where we could just smoke weed. Uh, even in the mission district, there was a lot of bars that had little backyards where you could go and basically smoke whatever the fuck you wanted back there. And n nobody cared. Um, but anyway, Deco was that, that place was fucking amazing. And I think it was it was this year because I remember going there with uh, Conquer and Kodak and uh, Cram, um, and we would invite other friends. We would tell them, "Yo, the Scratch Pickles have a weekly. Are you going to that shit?" And people would be like, "What?" It was like some real underground shit. And sometimes even we would send people to meet us there, and they would walk through the bar. And they would even walk past the staircase that went into the basement, but just thought it was like, you know, where they stored the beer, because it was such a sharp, it was a really sharp staircase, almost like a, a ladder. Um, and you kind of couldn't hear what was going on in the basement from the main level of the bar. So we would invite friends all the time to meet us there, and they would just not find it and thought they were in the wrong place. And it was pre-cell phones, so they would just be like, ah, fuck, I guess I'm... I missed out, you know, and we'd be like, dude, we were there. What the fuck, you know, and then we would physically take them the next time and they'd be like, oh, fuck, I didn't realize this is how you got to the basement. Yeah. So anyway, that that was the shit. One of my favorite memories from that place was when we would all leave at like two two thirty in the morning <laughs> when the bar would finally close and they'd kick everybody out and uh, everybody would would be bouncing and all of us like graffiti writers would be out front um and uh say goodbye to each other because we'd all walk off in different directions but uh we would always be putting on our latex gloves because all of us were gonna do tags on our way home and uh sometimes if people didn't have gloves we would give them extras it was just this funny thing like putting on our gloves like we're going to work and uh it was just uh you know it was, it was kind of part of our routine to close out the bar and then uh walk the streets it was kind of a good time to be out too because if police stopped you you could just tell them exactly what you did you closed out the bar and you're just walking home but after about three o'clock in the morning it's kind of hard to for a cop to go for that one because San Francisco is such a small place like you should have been home by now uh so you'd have to come up with you know different uh excuses but often you were home by then and you just pop your gloves off when you got home or you know if you heard a car creeping up behind you often I would take off my gloves discreetly in like the pockets of my hoodie and if I actually did get stopped by the police, you know, I would immediately kind of be like, hey, what's up? You know, I don't want any problem and kind of put my hands up and they could see immediately that I, I wouldn't have any pain on my hands and I had nothing in my pockets and, you know, they would let me go. 
leave me alone and just be like, what are you doing out so late? You know, that kind of shit. But rarely did I have any problems. Um, I remember that, uh, 4th of July, I, uh, decided I wanted to do a, a painting at, uh, a place we called Psycho City that was right on, uh, Market Street in San Francisco at the, uh, right where it meets Franklin. Uh, there was a big parking lot there. It was pretty much the most famous graffiti zone in San Francisco for a long, long, long time since I, God, I imagine it was started in the early eighties, uh, as like a, a graffiti location. Um, mostly cause they, you could paint there and they wouldn't paint it over. I don't know how many people painted there during the day early on, but at a certain point it was just game on. And so when I got there in 93, it was heavily bombed. It had layers and layers and decades and decades of graffiti on it. And, uh, it was just kind of a free for all. It was also a place where you might get robbed. Uh, there were sketchy people in the graffiti world and otherwise that, you know, might just prey on somebody to steal their cans to do their own thing with, you know? So you kind of had to be careful, but it was right on Market Street. So you were kind of safe in a way and you had a lot of ways to, to get away if you needed to. Um, so at the, at that point then in 95 and it was the 4th of July, I remember, um, cause I, my thinking was, well, I should say at that point in 95, uh, Psycho City was a bust. Uh, the possibility of getting arrested was pretty high. Quite a few people in the previous months had gotten arrested, um, trying to do stuff daytime at Psycho City. And, uh, you know, the police were just like, we know you guys don't have permission. They're trying to stop this. Uh, we're trying to clean this area up. And so, you know, you're getting arrested. Uh, but I thought the cops would have their hands full on the 4th of July dealing with fireworks bullshit. So I just went for it. Uh, I, and I even did the front wall, uh, facing market street, which was like kind of the, the prized wall in the whole yard. And, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I just said, fuck it. And I tried to go as big as I could thinking I was going to be fine. You know, that the, the cops weren't going to come by. Nobody was going to call. And luckily nobody did. But I think I had two gallons of house paint, a blue and a yellow, and a bunch of black spray paint and a few cans of random shit. And as high as I could with, a, I think I had an eight foot extension pole and I had a ladder even with me or a step stool kind of thing. And I was able to reach up about, my reach normally is, is uh, eight feet, just standing flat footed. Um, I can reach eight feet. So I was up probably another three or four feet. So figure 12 feet tall. And I think that section of, of the yard was, let's see, I'd say about 30 feet wide. So about 12 by 30 foot. And so I sketched out the piece, super fucking big. I filled that in with the yellow and then I filled in the whole background with the blue and that just took out the entire fucking wall. And, uh, then I went through with the black spray paint and some colors to add some details and shit and, and hooked it up real nice and bold, real simple too. It wasn't a wild style piece at all. It was very readable. Um, again, I'll try to find a picture of this somewhere so I can, you can see it, but, uh, it was fucking gigantic. And on the sides of it, I wrote fame whore because <laughs> I basically took out the main wall of psycho city, uh, which was a spot normally that two, three, or even four people could fit, you know, pieces onto. And I just took out the whole fucking thing It's almost a big fuck you. 
And I remember if you walked for a good, fuck, eight or nine blocks up Franklin Street, you could still read the piece, Giant. It was just, I don't know, it just, it always felt good to write my name really big, you know, to see that word big, it, it had like a, a visceral impact on graffiti writers and regular people, I think, too. Um, much in the same way that like Shepard Fairey's use of the word giant had a, this kind of sinister, larger-than-life implication. Um, and then, let's see, what else did we do that year? I remember going to the Oakland tracks a lot. I would hop on the BART train from San Francisco and take it out to Coliseum BART in uh in oakland right near the the oakland coliseum the uh the sports stadium and uh walk through kind of a warehouse zone uh over to the railroad tracks which is the main freight tracks and also i think where the uh what's that train the uh uh fuck oh the amtrak train would roll through there and both sides of the tracks just had walls that were the backs of warehouses that were really tall and really wide and just uh, didn't have any fucking windows at all because it just backed up to the trains. Uh, very few of them had like fences in front of them at all. So it was just kind of this open, you know, kind of rail yard with just graffiti of the highest level all over the place. Um, some of the best. Uh, graffiti writing I've ever seen in my entire life I saw there in the 90s uh, I honestly can't remember who took me to the Oakland tracks the first time could have been Jace he knew about all that shit um, he knew a lot about the, the East Bay spots because he was doing freight trains all over and always looking for new freight train spots so he had an eye out for all that stuff. But anyway, I remember uh, TDK crew was, I think, the most prominent one there. Um, Dream, of course. I think it was his crew. He was up a, a bunch. Uh, he had a, a lot of really fucking sick pieces. He had a lot of different styles. His tag styles were really tight. Um... He was a really, uh, he was kind of like a, like a graffiti prophet. Like he would write these things next to his pieces that were like messages to all of us about the importance of holding true to our ethic system as graffiti writers and, uh, checking our egos and respecting our elders uh, uh, you know, he, I feel like he warned of staying out of the gang life. Um, he ended up getting, uh, murdered. I think, ooh, I wish I could remember what year that was. Um, but he, he was a real influential guy, but I think we all kind of knew that he was also kind of dabbling in the dark side of street culture and uh he had a hell of a reputation as a as a fucking badass and not somebody to be fucked with uh but i don't know to this day like really what happened with his murder uh but dream was the shit and I, i'm glad i got to see a bunch of dream pieces in person uh and and his crew just fucking rock shit uh i remember too <sighs> guess it was at that point yeah there was a in tdk a, a guy that wrote mute and i had met him in albuquerque <laughs> in fuck maybe 92 he was traveling through doing something hip-hop related and i was on the uh college radio station uh KUNM in Albuquerque New Mexico 89.9 FM I'll bet it's still around 
And I used to be up there on Friday night as part of the hip-hop show, and they would play house and techno music from uh, the, the latter part of it. It was uh, 10 to 1, and we did hip-hop new stuff from uh, 10, to tw 10 to midnight, and then midnight to 1 was more like dance music. And it was pretty much the only place where you could hear legit underground uh, hip-hop or dance music on the radio in New Mexico, period. I think <laughs> I know sometimes you would catch that stuff on the college on the same college station during the week, but it, you know, at like five in the morning when really nobody's listening. <laughs> so it was kind of rare, but, uh, I don't know how they knew about us. It might've been through the college that they were doing their thing, but they came up to the, the station and we met and it was just cool to meet graffiti writers, um, from other places. And I remember they were super cool and they made me feel like Oakland was was cool because these guys are from Oakland and they're tight and it was it was a good vibe. So when I got to the Bay Area, uh, I started to see Mute Up, and uh, I think his name's Marty, and I always dug his shit. Every time I'd see him, he was all smiles. He was a super nice fucking dude, and his pieces were super fucking tight. I'll, again, try to find some mute pieces, and I might be able to see where, where he's at these days, but he was a standout to me. Another standout was uh, Crash with a K. Uh, I guess he would do it with a C sometimes, too, but TDK, Crash, uh, he was... Uh, when I would run into him down at the tracks, often he was on LSD, as was I, uh, I often did uh, LSD on Sundays, but, you know, uh, especially when I was doing uh, daytime pieces in the East Bay. Because back then, you know, if I was down there at, say, 10 in the morning, I might not run into another writer until about 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. Um, so I, I, I felt pretty safe. I didn't feel like I was having to worry about getting held up, shit like that. Uh, but I would often run into Crash because he was kind of of the same mentality. He'd be down there in the morning, and uh, <laughs> it was funny just running into him. And we were just such kindred spirits. We didn't really kick it that much. I would just run into him out, out in the world. But that's kind of where it was best to run into people. I remember running into Susan Farrell out there a bunch too, especially in the mornings. I think she had the same thinking too of just trying to sneak in and get her photos and get out. If you don't know who Susan Farrell is, she was the lead lady at Art Crimes. She was the founder. And uh, Art Crimes was the first graffiti website. It was, it was literally graffiti.org. And uh, it was all her doing. I think she set it up when she was in college. And it was a thing where you could send uh, digital photos of your work to her. And she, if, if it was good stuff and the photos were good quality, she would give you a section um, to build on. So it became this like incredible reservoir uh, for graffiti writers where you could look up uh, an individual writer's work just by clicking on their name and to be listed on art crimes was kind of a legitimizer of some sort in the world in the kind of international graffiti scene you know if you weren't listed on art crimes you know you had some work to do <laughs> and also it was cool because it was kind of for the first time there was this list of writers names so as you're a toy and trying to come up with a new name for yourself that'll stick something you can rock with you could always check the art crimes list to see if that name had already been taken and that's why i kind of think probably around let's see let me think about this i guess that would have been about the mid to late 90s uh Graffiti writers started, at least to me, using um, 
words that were nonsense. You know, like giant is a word that you can find in the dictionary. Scene is a word you can find in the dictionary. Risk, vision, uh, doc. You know, these are uh, regular words that a graffiti writer is repurposing. Um, but then, you know, at a certain point, all those are kind of taken. And graffiti writers adapted by kind of coming up with a uh, little, uh, I don't know, sometimes it was just a, like if you were going to write slay, uh, you'd find out pretty quickly that S-L-A-Y is taken, a real word. So you might write S-L-A-E and hope that you never write in the same city as this other <laughs> slay because there's going to be problems because you're basically writing the same thing with a subtle change, you know? But that's that's how it kind of started. And then it started getting even more abstract um, where, you know, the, the words would really not make any sense at all. Uh, I'm trying to think... Oh, shit. I'm pretty baked. Now I'm trying to think of examples of... Uh, people who I guess well I guess that's one fours but I'll bet he had a better reason for that F-O-R-S uh, damn I wish I could think of better ones uh, let me look at some of the names on my notes here maybe that'll yeah see yeah even conquer uh, was spelled a little off because he dropped the the uh, the U and the E, but that's not a great example. But in any case, um, the the words got weird. Uh, but every you know whatever. I don't even know why I got into that. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, TDK fucking Oakland tracks. Yeah, I, I was doing uh symmetrical pieces back then so i would basically i would usually use tracing paper um and i would write out a gi kind of uh wild style and maybe uh half of the a and then i would fold the the paper kind of midway down the letter a and then i would try to fit the letters N and T into the exact shape of the reversed GIA. And then I would unfold it and I would have a perfectly symmetrical piece. Um, now the trick, of course, was to be able to paint it. You know, it's one thing to be able to draw something like that using a fucking cute folding trick, but uh, to paint it was a whole other thing. It was kind of a Zen thing. And also, uh, I tried to uh, be conscious of like measuring things out and using the tools I learned as an architect and engineer in high school and college. Uh, I would like walk the wall and count the steps and try to find the center of the of my section of wall. And you know, I was pretty fucking systematic about it. I remember really preferring to paint on brick walls because then the lines of the bricks uh, created a grid so I could check my work back and forth between the left and the right side to make sure they were perfectly symmetrical. Um, but even then it was uh, it was tricky. Uh, you know, there was a lot of big smooth curves, a lot of S curves that you know, we're like, would span like 12 feet of space. And those are really tricky to pull with spray paint smoothly. Um, but I was doing it so regularly at that time, the spray painting part of it was really second nature. And I would often surprise myself what I could do with the spray paint, uh, just by, you know, really concentrating, you know, it, honestly, I was smoking a lot of grass back then too, and would get pretty baked when we would make pieces and uh that would help me zone in on those details too and it has it's always had that effect on me of like uh 
in increasing concentration uh, versus uh, kind of being uh, sloppy. <laughs> I mean, some people get high and, you know, when I've been around them and they, they get a spray can in their hands and they just, they bug out and they, they, they don't know how to like get it under control. And, uh, yeah, it was always kind of the opposite for me in that way. It would, uh, get me really in the zone. And I, I just loved, uh, pulling as clean a line as I possibly could. I, I kind of got known for it. It almost looked like a sticker. It, I, I would get them so clean, but the uh, the the big test I remember would be when I would have access to Photoshop. Uh, I forget at what point I did this, but I scanned in a bunch of those symmetrical pieces, and I actually cut them in half in Photoshop and flipped one side to see exactly how close I had gotten and often it was dead on it was uh I don't know I, I you know it's like I really worked to make that happen but it was still magic to actually see that it worked um at a certain point even in 95 I was starting to abandon the symmetrical style uh and working on new styles uh that were influenced there came from other influences uh also i was doing a lot of lsd in 95 and that was having a pretty dramatic uh impact on my uh style development at the time too as far as uh like a lot of the symmetrical stuff i had been doing was very very straight and on a grid horizontal vertical uh the angles were very regular the width of the bars we call them in graffiti writing like the the actual width of each letter stroke uh in the symmetrical style i kept that really consistent um sometimes just the the width of a cinder block uh so, so again i could measure and keep everything really perfect perfectly measured uh but at a certain point i started to break away from that and do you know a lot more curves asymmetry a lot of bars that went from really really wide like th three feet wide even and that would taper slowly as they went up to maybe even just a few inches wide um so really dramatic kind of liquidy shapes versus the kind of stark grid-like symmetry that I was doing previously. I, I always felt like once I had a style down, uh, it was time to abandon it. It's like I get kind of bored with graffiti writers that just do the same fucking style their soul, their whole writing career, and it's just like... I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like if you're genuinely interested in it and continuing to uh, want to uh, interact with that world, you've got to continue to try to innovate and bring new things, even if they're kind of ugly. You know, that was kind of a, something that was taught to me was sometimes in the... Uh, in the journey to find a, a cool new style you're going to do some really, really whack shit. It's like the first day of school syndrome. You know, it's like guaranteed that first day is going to suck because you just, you don't know anything. You got to smash your way through it and try to survive and then you learn and then the next day is easier and the next day is easier and you get, you know, it gets easier from there. But, uh, uh, so at that time... I'm going to try to segue here. Like I started doing th that kind of more, uh, loose round style stuff. Uh, and I, one wall I remember particularly doing that on. And again, it was just with house paint and a few cans of spray paint was this wallet, uh, 20th in Illinois in San Francisco. Uh, I think there's condos there now. I'll bet that whole neighborhood's been rebuilt, but, in the 90s, it was 
the shipyard area and it was basically abandoned especially on the weekend it was super super quiet nobody really had any reason to be down there uh it was a little dangerous because the police had no reason to go down there because it was just so quiet um so if you did get robbed or something there would be no witnesses so you kind of had to watch yourself down there uh, but it was a great area for graffiti writers again, cause there was nobody around. <laughs> uh, and this wall at 20th in Illinois in particular was really, really special. I've never painted on a wall like it since it was made out of scraps from the side of uh, a gigantic ship. And it's like they had just literally cut this ship apart into like eight foot tall sections and uh even the rivets um that connected uh different sheets of metal on this big ship they were just they cut right through all that and just made these sections and just set them up in a row and uh i think they had pounded some posts and connected these big metal sheets uh to the posts and it it created this really gigantic uh, steel fence. Uh, I think it was about eight feet high. And I remember it was uh, really rusty. It had a gorgeous patina on it. And uh, it was just beautiful. It, was just, it just looked so old. And it was so obviously off of a ship. And... Uh, it barely had any graffiti on it at the time because, again, nobody really went down there. Graffiti writers had no reason to go down there because there wasn't really much going on. Nobody had really set it off until, uh, I think, Twist uh, hit it. Uh, I think there were art studios right on that corner. If I remember right, Legend had it, that somebody's art studio was right there, and they knew Twist, and uh, he would go visit, and saw nobody was out there, and didn't think anybody would care, and he did these, some really nice graffiti on this wall, uh, even some hand-painted things, if I remember correctly, and it kind of set it off, and then people went out there to check it out, because he was, we all just would freak out when we found his stuff on the work because it was he was out doing a lot of work but it would be kind of in out of the way places sometimes where you wouldn't expect it uh, where he could kind of I would imagine take his time and experiment a little bit and not have to worry about the police and and people and bullshit He's, he always seemed like a pretty shy dude but uh we started going out there a lot more um I don't know if it was, at the, I guess it was at that point, that year, at, at some point, Twist got into a beef with KR, um, and KR's the guy that started Crink, and back then, uh, I believe they were both going to the Art Institute of San Francisco, I think, I could be wrong there, um, and uh, also, I could be wrong again, but I believe Twist was dating Reminisce, and she did uh, these horses, life-size horses, all over San Francisco as graffiti. Um, they were fucking incredible, and she was just the fucking coolest as far as we were concerned. You know, she didn't really hang out at all and was kind of shy and didn't like a lot of that attention but we fucking loved her work and thought she was the best and anyway i think she was dating twist and something happened between him and her and i think maybe kr started hanging out with her and then that created a rift between twist and kr it turned to street beef where they started going over each other and I remember going by there, that 20th in Illinois wall, and KR had capped a bunch of twist stuff, and it was just like, oh, fuck. Damn, it's on for real now. 
And again, that was pretty rare for people to go head-to-head, like, have real beef with each other. And for those two to be doing that was just like, fuck, this is wild. Um, I even remember my friends, uh, Soap and Felon, somehow getting involved in that where they were kind of on KR's side and I think they might have fucked up one of Twist's bicycles or something and then he fucked up theirs. (laughs) It was this big fucking mess, but again, it was hard to prove who did what. Mm. But that wall was really dope. Uh, A lot of people ended up painting there. I painted there with soap and felon a few times. Um, it was, uh, I even took, uh, I guess that was the next year in 96. I had visitors from San Diego came up and I I think I took them to that wall too. Another spot we used to paint back then was on front street way down by the, uh, I guess that's the Bay bridge, like the base of the Bay bridge on the San Francisco side. And, uh, during the day it was a big parking lot for like corporate people that worked in the high rises there in the I guess that's part of the financial district it's like I guess that would be the Embarcadero neighborhood really where there's you know obviously a lot of corporate businesses and what's not down there oh I gotta fix my fucking chair uh and that was a cool spot on the weekends because there'd be nobody fucking down there and there was a bunch of good walls. Um, I remember the Lord's Crew guys had a bunch of stuff there. Um, it was a kind of it was a spot where if you went over the wrong person, uh, you could get your ass kicked or start a beef or something like that. So you kind of had to be chill. But if you, uh, I don't know, we we, we were really kind of operating by the old school rules of what can go over what as far as like um the hierarchy of graffiti forms you know it starts with a tag um but if you do say a filled in throw up which are the bubble letters you can do those over tags and the person with the tag shouldn't really be bummed because the person that went over you took more time and took more effort and showed you that you had more time basically and you could have done better you know if you had tried harder um but if say that person comes back and does like a nice uh clean letter form piece uh like a what we'd call a simple style or even a block letter over top of the throw up then the person with the throw up shouldn't be tripping because you've just kind of upped the ante now, in the end, it's like a full wild style production with characters and background and the whole nine. And, you know, if you really had your shit together, you could kind of, you know, there was, there, let's say there was a lot of like kind of simplified graffiti that was out there. People weren't going full wild style productions. So if you were one of those people like myself on occasion, you know, you could just show up and just go to work. And if somebody was that you painted over was disappointed, you know, they were welcome to go back over you, but they better do something better or you better just not even fuck with it. You better just lay low, you know. So it was kind of a humbling thing, too, if... um say an OG came along and did a smoking hot wild style over your little simple style piece, you know? Uh, and I took that shit really seriously <laughs> for sure. Cause I tried to come as hard as I could every fucking time, you know, depending on how much time and space I had really. But that front street wall was really cool. I remember hanging out down there with Kotick Joe and, conquer and those guys and uh we would just have a good time just boom box and 40s i think there was like uh you know a store you could go to to get like snacks and shit 
I remember meeting a girl down there that was like a trippy goth girl that uh, she was really cute and tall and uh, she was just by herself cruising around and she saw us writing uh, graffiti on the on the walls down there and she just walked right over and I thought that was pretty bold because there was again nobody around you never know who you're going to run into we're a bunch of dudes that didn't know her it was all guys but she came right over and uh introduced herself to me right away i don't know if i was the closest person or whatever but i could tell pretty quickly she was on drugs i figured she was on lsd and she was just out on her own fucking high as shit in a neighborhood she'd never been to just exploring and see saw somebody doing art and was like, oh, I'll go see that. I'll bet they're nice. And sure enough, we were nice. Uh, and she hung out for quite a while. And I think I even left with her and went back to her place. And she was like super gothy and weird. <laughs> but again, really pretty. <coughs> I was curious about her. Obviously, I went back to her place, but um, I'd, I never hooked up with her. I, I thought she was just a little too out there, even for me. <laughs> but uh, I remember that happening there. <clears throat> I remember going to visit her at the a place called the Blue Danube on Clement Street at probably like uh, 4th Avenue, 3rd or 4th Avenue for any of the San Francisco people again. And uh, I don't know if it's still there. It was a little coffee shop. It was really cute. And she worked there. And uh, like I said, I was, I, she was really cute. But I, I just wasn't so sure about her. But I, I, I tried a few times. I think I hung out with her like five times before I was just like, I can't, I can't hang out with this girl. This is crazy. <laughs> uh, but I remember going by there. She would give me free espressos and shit. It was the hookup, but that was just a, another random memory. Um, that same year, too, I was uh, putting up, uh, like, I, I would make Xerox copies, and I'd go out with a bucket of uh, wallpaper paste that I would get at, like, the hardware store. Um, sometimes I would steal it because it was so easy to steal, uh, and it was cheap. It wasn't a big fucking deal. Uh but anyway, on on Sunday mornings, because it was just so quiet in San Francisco on Sunday mornings, you could get away with a lot. And uh, I would just go out with this bucket. I think I had a bicycle at the time with a, with a rack in the front. I'm trying to think what I would have been riding. But any, anyway, I would go out and I would just, uh, we call it wheat pasting. We would wheat paste uh, posters up. Uh, it was another thing Shepard Ferry was doing a whole bunch. I, I think a lot of people know he, he did a lot and still does. Well, maybe he doesn't, but his team does. Um, but I was doing that too. A bunch of us were. Um, and I had this one that was like a little character with a pistol. And it just said, uh, uh, sh what did it say? Stop graffiti, shoot a tagger. Uh and it was meant to, you know, kind of in jest, you know, because people in general kind of hated graffiti and thought graffiti writers were fucking super assholes. And, uh, but, you know, n none of them, I think, really will, would go to the length of, of killing us. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> but uh, I just thought that was funny, you know shoot a tagger I wasn't trying to be serious the character had a big smile on his face it was meant to be cartoony and silly uh, but I put them all over the fucking place and uh, my graffiti writer friends thought that was really funny um, you know looking back uh, it has this kind of dark aspect to it because of Ty's death uh, Ty was this kid, I don't know what year he, he was killed, but he was a graffiti kid. I'd see him around. He was really strange and fun. Uh, real maniac. God bless Ty. 
John, I think was his John Lim. Uh, rest in peace, homie. But he uh, he was going to do a rooftop in the Tenderloin, I believe, and and uh, was climbing up a climbing up something to get to the roof and probably made too much noise and alerted the a neighbor that lived right there that his apartment backed up to the fire escape that Ty was using. And uh, I, I don't know the details, but Ty, I believe, was running down the stairs trying to leave, and this guy shot him in the back, and Ty went down the stairs and was dead. Uh, and it was a big fucking mess, and I don't think the guy was ever prosecuted. Uh, you know, I he, he, he deserves something. I don't know what, but... Uh, I hope that guy gets his due because shooting Ty in the back was not cool at all. Uh, so yeah, I mean, somebody actually shot a tagger. <laughs> that sucks. And so it wasn't, I don't know. I think that was years later. Uh, and again, when I did my little flyer, it was just being funny. Nobody at that point, I think, had been shot by somebody over graffiti so it wasn't like in bad taste or anything as far as I'm concerned uh, but I wouldn't do it again <laughs> just in in memory of Ty it's, I, I wouldn't do that um, something I noticed I saw a photo I'll try to post this one too of a, it was like a delivery truck that was all rusted and it was in this uh <coughs> behind this abandoned like warehouse building that we used to do graffiti in in Berkeley and uh I was uh at that time I was really tight with uh some Sikh uh girls uh they were raised in India and then they came back to the states and uh a few of them stuck together and moved to the East Bay and uh, one of them uh, was Amarjit and uh, Narankar. And they were, uh, I think both last names were Khalsa. Like the Khalsas, uh, I don't know what, what the deal is with that, but a lot of them had that last name. A lot of the, the Sikhs that I've met during my life. And I've met a lot somehow through the New Mexico connection. I think there's a big Sikh community in New Mexico. And the Sikhs are like the they're Hindus, um, but they wear the these turbans often white turbans because they uh, don't cut their hair. Uh, all of my Sikh friends, um, I I don't think they were even allowed to cut their hair until they were like eighteen, maybe something like that, and then they could choose to cut their hair or not. But it's almost like some Rastafarian shit where their power and their dedication to their faith was shown in the length of their hair so uh yeah so they all wore turbans sometimes you know people mistake them for muslims when people asshole racists are freaking out you know they don't realize that they're actually hindu uh i love the sikhs they're they're fun they're uh there's some Sikh graffiti writers that are really really famous and i think most people don't realize that they're sikhs uh, not that it matters, but they're uh, they're like a warrior uh, culture. They're um, the Sikh men that I know were trained in uh, martial arts and with particular weapons. Um, if I remember right, they're the defenders of the poor. Um, so they're they're kind of like uh, dedicated to uh, uh, keeping you know keeping order and in the peace even if it means you have to be the ones to commit some violence to stop a conflict but they're really uh benevolent as far as i'm concerned but in any case uh <laughs> these sea girls uh i think Amrishi back then was dating my friend sam flores who's a, a famous fine art painter now uh, i'm sure a lot of my listeners know who sam flores is uh, but back then, uh, we were all going to raves and stuff a lot. And, uh, I think I remember running into Sam 
at a rave and he was with this girl Amarjeet. She was super, super pretty and really cute and just like fucking total goddamn raver. It was awesome. And uh, Sam was really into her at the time. But we got to be friends. And uh, even after Sam and her broke up, we, we stayed friends. And uh, so I was out there Christmas. Um, I think it was Christmas night. They had uh, Amarjeet and Arankar had a little party and invited people over. I think my man Two-Face was there. Uh, he actually might have been dating uh, Amarjeet at that time. Uh, oddly, later on, I was engaged to Amarjeet. <laughs> That'll come in a later story, but uh, yeah, funny side note. Anyway, uh, we decided to go write graffiti that night. Narankar, I, th I forget who... I forget who uh, came up with the spot because I know I had painted there before, but I, I don't know if it was my idea to go do it. But anyway, we went. Um, me and who else was there? Might have been Set, our friend Paul. Uh, there was just a few of us, but it was Christmas night. It was chilly. It was dead fucking quiet. And uh, it was super fucking fun. It was uh, Christmas night is always a wonderful night to write graffiti, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, there's really minimal law enforcement out. Uh, probably one of the most chill nights for law enforcement of the whole year. I can't really even think of another night that would be chiller. Maybe Thanksgiving night too is a great night to go write graffiti, but uh. Yeah, that Christmas night, we fucking hooked it up, did nice pieces. I think I have a photo of that somewhere that I can post to. Uh, but that was really fucking good times. Um, I think that's all I had for the random fucking notes I had for 95. Uh, I hope that was worth listening to. <laughs> uh, I've got notes already here for... Uh, a bunch of stuff about 1996 so I'll, I'll be back with a new podcast uh soon I, I promise I won't uh take like uh I think I took a month and a half off from the previous episode but as many of you know I was uh finishing up work on my 1965 Pontiac Tempest I I guess in uh February I really started uh, putting work into it. I removed all the moldings and that left 96 holes in the side of the car. And I had to fill every single one of those. So I taught myself how to do body work. And uh, yeah, it took fucking about nine months to get my car uh, finished in the, the last, uh, the last about month or two was painting and uh it was all really time sensitive um so i had to kind of hustle and that's why i haven't made a podcast in a while but the fucking car is done mostly 98 percent i'd say i've been driving it and cruising it and it's fucking fun it was worth the effort uh i feel great with the accomplishment uh but yeah i wasn't able to do podcasts and stuff so i'll get caught up i'll uh try to keep it interesting and uh yeah thanks for listening i sure appreciate it peace